Deacon Vial, we want to welcome all those who are here physically with us and want to welcome also all those who are joining us online. Now, please have your Bibles open and if you find it helpful to have an outline with you, uh, please download it from our website, arpc.sg. Now, many years ago, I uh, went to work in a part of the world where the temperature during winter is in the sub-20s, actually close to the sub-30s. Now, it was uh, the first time in my life that I experienced winter for a very long time, the entire winter. Now, to counter the cold, the offices that I worked in and the house that, we, uh, that I lived in were all heated up. As a result, the places where I worked and stayed were very dry, right? And uh, being a gung-ho and an inexperienced young man at the time, I never applied any moisturizer on me, thinking that such things are only for people who want to look nice and pretty. Furthermore, I kept to my usual Singapore routine of taking a shower twice a day. Now, unlike the water in Singapore, the water in my host country is what we call hard water, full of minerals. Now, the combination of all these factors dried up my skin immensely. It wasn't long before I developed serious skin irritation that led to scratching, infection. I had patches of bad skin all over my body, from the neck down to my hands and to my feet. Every day, I felt like I was burning inside and itching outside. I felt like Job at that point. So what did I do about it? I thought showering more will help. Right? The hot showers actually gave me some kind of relief right? because they numbed the itch. So I landed up taking longer showers with hotter water. Now, my friends, that was a fatal mistake. Despite the temporary relief, it further aggravated my skin problem because it dried up the skin even more. Now, I was in so much agony that I could not concentrate and function properly at all. Now, I resisted going to the doctors because I wasn't confident of the medical standards in that country. And I was so concerned what the cause will be for me as a foreigner. But thankfully, some of my local friends advised and encouraged me to seek medical help. They were even kind enough to go with me to the hospital. And within a week of treatment, I was healed. The patches started to go off and everything went back to normal. And I can tell you, ever since then, I've never applied so much moisturizing cream in my life. And it was not about looking pretty. You see, my friends, unless we know the depth of our problem, we will scheme over the problem or seek temporary solutions that might bring some kind of relief. However, such temporary solutions will not solve the problem. They might patch up the, the cracks you know, for a while, and, uh, but it will eventually cause more problems or deepen the problem. Now, that is the case for all humanity. We have a big problem. Unless we know what our problem is and how bad it is, we will not get the right solutions. So getting the right solutions requires us 
to get our problem right. What then is our problem? We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. The problem that all humanity shares in is that we are dead. Dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. See, the you in verse 1 refers to the Gentile Christians who are the main readers of this letter. This was their condition before knowing Jesus. But by verse 3, Paul included himself and stated that this problem applies to all mankind. See, being dead in our trespasses and sins is a universal human condition and problem without Christ. Now let us unpack some of the terms used here in verse 1 so that we have some clarity. See, being dead does not mean physical death. Otherwise, the readers will not be able to read this letter, right? Being dead means being spiritually dead. All those without Christ are separated and alienated from God, the author and the giver of life. So in other words, even if we were physically alive, we were dead spiritually. And the cause of their spiritual death and our spiritual death is our trespasses and sins. Now, we often see signs in Singapore like this, right? Private property, trespassers will be prosecuted. In some countries, it may even be trespassers will be arrested or shot. See, trespass just means crossing the boundary, crossing the line, right? In the Bible, trespass means to cross the boundaries of God's law, right? Which means it is to break the law. The basic meaning then of sin, it means to miss the mark, miss or falling short of the standard. And the standard in the Bible is God's holiness. In other words, we have all sinned because we have fallen short of God's glory and holiness. And what would a spiritual dead life look like? Verses 2 and 3 to 3 describes that kind of life in three ways. These three ways tells us the three different influences and bondages that all of humanity is under. Firstly, verse 2 tells us that it is a life which follows the course or the age of the world. Now, the cause or the age of the world represents the value system, the morality and the attitudes of the existing world, which is against God and contrary to God's values. It is quite clear that all of us here are heavily influenced, under the influence, if not under the bondage of this world. See, we often succumb and follow their definitions, isn't it? For example, the world tells us that success is, is determined or marked by our grades, our jobs, our possessions. It defines good life by materialism, our have and have-nots, and the holidays we take. And the world defines our value, our identity, by the number of likes and followers on our social media account or our marital or our social status. 
The world also teaches values such as being aggressive in order to get your way and win in this world. It teaches us to know more people, not to love them, but to use them. If we pause for a moment now and be honest with ourselves, we know that we have followed the cause of the world in one way or another. That's the first way. The second description of a spiritual dead life is a life that follows the prince of the power or the kingdom of the air. Now, who is this prince? It is the devil. He's understood as the leader of all the evil forces in the unseen world. In other parts of the Bible, he's also known as the prince of this world and the god of this age. And later on in uh, Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4 and 6, he's going to be mentioned again. And he's also known as the prince or the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, before knowing Christ, all people are known as the sons of disobedience. By nature, we are rebels who will lift our fists against God, disobey all His commands, and go against His will. See, when we do that, we may be thinking that, oh no, we are exerting our independence, we are exercising our freedom. However, in reality, we are actually enslaved by the devil, following his influence and his work in us. You see, even in Ephesians for Christians, we are told in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armour of God to stand against the devil. See, the devil may have already been defeated by the Lord Jesus, but he's still actively working until Christ comes again. So what more for those who are outside of Christ? Prior to knowing Jesus, we are influenced and enslaved by the devil. But lastly, in verse 3, a spiritual dead life is one which we follow the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we are under bondage to our inner inclination towards sin. See, the flesh here does not refer to the physical flesh, but our fallen sinful nature. See, the passion of this fallen sinful nature is not merely sexual, but will include all things like anger, jealousy, discontentment, and greed. You know, our body and our mind are corrupted in a sense that every part of it is tainted with sin. Hence, we become inclined to think and act in sinful ways. Even desires that are good and intended to be good can be twisted and warped by our sinful nature. So very often, uh, we are asked, whether is it right? You know, is it right for us to do well in our work or studies? Now, the answer is that it's a resounding yes, right? We are to do well. Our attitude at work and the quality of our work certainly glorifies God. However, in the sinfulness of sin and our flesh, we can so easily turn work, which is good, into an idol. And furthermore, we use our performance as work, at work 
as a means of gaining applause from people and feeding our pride. So this is just an example of how we follow the passions of our flesh, turning what is good into evil. So these three ways describe how we walked or lived if we do not know the Lord Jesus. It is a spiritual dead life under the external influence of the world, the dominion of the evil one, and our in inner inclination of our sinful nature. As such, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, in verse 3, the wrath here refers to the wrath of God. Now, we might get uneasy with the word wrath, right? However, God's wrath is not an uncontrolled and unreasonable anger like what we see in some people. On the contrary, it is the rightful anger of a holy God. He is personally angered by sin and he will not turn a blind eye to it. That means without any intervention, all of us here will have to face God's rightful wrath and just judgment for our sins. So my friend, this is the big problem we have as humanity. This is who we were and will be without Christ, dead, dominated, and enslaved by the world, Satan, and our sinful nature. Left to ourselves, we face the wrath of a holy God. Now we now know our problem. What then is the right solution? What is the solution to our depraved and desperate condition? The solution to our problem is recorded for us in verses 4 to 7. In these verses, we can know the what, the how, and the why of the solution. The what, the how, and the why of the solution. Firstly, the what. The solution to our problem is found in God's decisive and gracious intervention to change our condition. And this is captured by the first two words in verse 4. After describing all that we are without Christ, it says, but God. So what did God do for us? Verses 5 to 6 tells us specifically that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in our powerlessness to do anything, anything about our depraved and desperate condition, God did this for us. So take note of the contrast in these verses with that of verse, verses 1 to 3. See, on the left-hand side, you could see we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But on the right-hand side, God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with Him. Now, that would mean forgiveness of sins, for death is the wages of our sin. And we are no longer under the dominion of the prince of the air and the ways of the world, but now we are seated in the heavenly places where Jesus reigns supreme. 
And instead of being alienated and separated from God, Christians are reconciled to God and to be in His presence in the heavenly places. See, God totally reversed and undid the consequences of our sins. The old life we lived, and emphasized by the word once in verse 2 and 3, is no longer the life we live now. That is what God has done for us. But let us now come to the how of the solution. How did God do that? It is by sending Jesus to die for us. See, in the preceding verses of chapter 2, in chapter 1, verse 19 to 21, we know that God, in the working of His great might, raised Jesus from the dead and seated with Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now, these verses describe the three historical events after Jesus' death. His resurrection, His ascension to heaven, and the session, which is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, what God has done in and for Jesus is now done for us. As we join in union with the Lord Jesus, we experience and enjoy the benefits of sharing in Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and session. We are made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Him in the heavenly places. My friends, how amazing and wonderful is that? What has become of Christ has now become of us. That is the how. But lastly, the why. The why of the solution. Why did God do that? Why did He go through all these troubles and the pain of sending His Son to die and to suffer for us? Now, four word groups in verses 4 to 7, are used to describe the motivation of God's actions in Christ Jesus. And these words are also a description of God's nature and His character. So firstly, God saved us at such a cost because He is rich in mercy. It is God's abundant loving kindness towards the helpless like us who can't save ourselves. The wrath that we deserve was not meted out to us in the merits of Jesus. But secondly, God was motivated by His great love for us. See, we understood earlier that God is personally angered by sin. He will judge. So all who face, you know, all of us who sin will face the wrath of God. However, God not only has anger towards sin, he also has great love towards us. The wrath and the love of God are not mutually exclusive. His holiness and love are both in his character and in his nature. And thirdly, in verse 7, it tells us that it is also the immeasurable riches of God's grace. It is his exceedingly and surpassing undeserved favour on us sinners. And lastly, it is His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. His divine goodness motivates God to give us His solution in Christ. 
And verse 7 further tells us that God's solution or salvation will have the result of showing His grace and His kindness in eternity. And indeed, it will be so. And God is fully deserving of this glory. See, we were His enemies. We were rebels, sinners, who were dead and deserving of His wrath. Yet, He saved us at the cost of His precious only Son. Now, let me ask you, when someone does something wrong against you, how would you normally react or respond? If they cut your cue, backstab you, badmouth you, cheated you, abused you, what would you have liked to do to that person? I guess most of us here will want to take some kind of revenge, isn't it? And even if you won't, or can't retaliate, you will find it hard to forgive the person. But not for God. God even went further to show grace and kindness to people who have sinned against Him. He sent His Son to die and save us from our sins. The depth of our wickedness, the depth of our powerlessness only serves to magnify the greatness of God's mercy, love, and grace. Now, one of the most uh, famous and most watched art pieces in the world is the Mona Lisa, right? Now, when you look at a painting, very rarely will anyone say how pretty the lady is, right? Instead, they will comment on how the painting displays the animatic expression of the lady, the use of the aerial background, and the brilliant mix of colours. See, the one who gets the praise and the glory is not the lady in the picture, but it is the artist, Leonardo da Vinci, who gets all the glory. An article that I read, you know, wrote about how brilliant Leonardo uh, was in translating all his learning in science, geography, and anatomy into the painting. So likewise, my friends, the salvation and the change in the lives of Christians is not credited to the Christian. All credit, my friends, will go to God, the author of our salvation. We become living pieces of His workmanship, which exudes praise and glory for the Creator and Saviour. So my friends, we have spoken about who we were without Christ, spiritually dead in our sins, facing the wrath of God. And we also covered about who we are now because of what God has done for us, spiritually alive, raised with Christ, and seated in the heavenly realms because of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and session. And we come to the last part of the jigsaw in part three, in point three. How then can we be saved? How can we then receive this salvation which God in His mercy and love has offered to us? Now to answer this question, we must explore the nature of this salvation in verses 8 to 10. Verse 8 tells us that we are saved by grace. 
Grace, as we said earlier, is the undeserved favour of God towards us. Paul gives further clarification to what that means. He affirms what grace, uh, what grace is by stating it negatively twice. Firstly, he says, it is not your own doing. In other words, we didn't do anything to contribute to our salvation. In fact, we only contributed to our sin and to His wrath. But secondly, in verse 9, our salvation by grace means that it is not a result of works. Now, works here refers to the good deeds we do, be it piety or charity. See, the problem with our good deeds is that they are always tainted with sin. Many a times, we have mixed motives in what we do and what we hope to achieve from it. And furthermore, we will have to have 100% good deeds if we are to be perfect before a holy God. It is not based on a 50% passing mark. Even the PSLE requires 65% mark to get an express level. Now, of course, that's just a tongue-in-cheek comment. But you get the picture. Our works are not good enough and will never be enough before our holy God. And that is why no one can boast that they have contributed anything to our salvation. And continuing from there, verse 10 affirms salvation by grace positively by stating that our salvation is God's workmanship. It is not our works, but God's work. It was His initiative and action to save us. However, in verse 10, we also see that good works has its place. While we are not saved by our good works, we are saved or recreated to do good works. See, good works are not the basis of our salvation. However, it is the fruit, the nature, and the goal of our salvation. It is important to note that Paul used the word walk. If you look at verse 10, he used the word walk. It forms a contrast to verse 1, where he states that we once walk in our trespasses and sin, but because of Jesus, we now walk in good works. Now, the second way Paul affirms salvation by grace positively is in verse 9. He says, Our salvation is a gift. It's a present laid on a platter for us. Now, let me ask you, what is the difference between a gift and wage? See, wages are what we are supposed to receive as a payment for our work. A gift, on the other hand, is free on the part of the receiver. The cost is borne by the giver. Now, that is what salvation is. It is a gift from God, initiated by God, all from God, and the cost is borne by His Son. The only wages we deserve is death. For Romans 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that is what salvation is, my friends, then how can we receive it? How then can we be saved? Well, verse 8 tells us that we receive it through faith. Now, the late John Stott defines faith as the humble trust with which we receive the salvation for ourselves. Now, if God's grace is the ground of salvation, then faith is the means by which it is appropriated. Now, just think about it. When someone gives you a gift, a present, what do you have to do in order to get the gift? Well, you just need to take the gift and thank the person for it, isn't it? In order to enjoy the gift, you need to trust that the giver has given you the gift and take it to enjoy it. That is what faith means. So what does that mean for us now, whether we are Christians or not? See, Ephesians 2, chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, tells us clearly that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone. Now, that means four things for us. Firstly, salvation is not dependent on our works. Our social standing, our intelligence, the number of degrees hung on our wall, our niceness, our philanthropy, and even ministry do not contribute to our salvation. See, very often children and youth, you know, they will be asked, how do you know that you will go to heaven if you die? Now, there will be a significant proportion who will be unsure or they will say no. And if you probe further, they will say that it's because they think they have not done enough or they are not good enough. I have not prayed enough. I have not read my Bible consistently. I am easily angered. But what about you as adults and young adults? How would you answer that question? Now, if you are unsure, that means you are placing confidence in your own works, your own conduct, which cannot save. See, my friends, the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus, His work, His death, His resurrection. It is by grace and not by works that we are saved. You can say that even one of the criteria for salvation is that we recognize that we are indeed not good enough. It is only when we realize that we are specially dead as sinners will we then turn to trust in Jesus, who is the only one who can make us alive. Now, that's not to say that good works are not important, but that is what we produce when we believe in Jesus. We are not saved by works, but we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So for the Christians, being saved by grace is not a license to sin, for that totally goes against what we are saved from and we are, what we are saved for. Our life should now be one that will give praise and glory to God. But secondly, 
salvation is not dependent on our feelings. See, I think we wake up every day, you know, and we go through the day having different emotions and different feelings. See, I might feel good and joyful one day, but sad and depressed on another day. And for some of you, you may just go through each day feeling you are close to God or not so close to God. Now, when you feel close to God, you feel that you are in the right relationship with Him and are assured of your salvation. But when you feel otherwise, your confidence is shaken. Now, I'm not saying that emotions and feelings are unimportant. Our emotions are God-given. But in our fallenness, our emotions are not reliable to discern reality. Our emotions are to be rooted in the truth of God. See, just like the psalmist, when you read the psalms, they will go through ups and downs in their emotions, but they will find assurance of God's goodness and salvation in His revelation. See, it's far better for us now because we now have God's ultimate revelation in His Son, the Lord Jesus. His life, His death, and His resurrection are what we are to trust objectively for our salvation. And that will inform our emotions correctly. But thirdly, salvation is not dependent on our circumstances. Now, it's not dependent on whether things in your life are going well or not. See, sometimes we can wrongly assume that when things are going wrong or going well for you in your family, things are going well for you at work, in our relationships, means that we are blessed by God, we are saved. Or we, when we, we might think that God is against us when things are not going so well. Now, my friends, that is far from the truth. See, the certainty of our salvation is rooted in the nature, the character, and the works of God in Christ Jesus. See, changing our circumstances neither change our condition nor our status before God. And that was what Job knew and learned. It is not determined by circumstances. God has given us His Son. That is the best evidence of His love and His mercy. So trusting in Him for salvation is better than assuming it from our circumstances. But lastly, salvation is not dependent on the amount of faith we have, even if faith is necessary. See, faith is the human response in trusting an object of faith. Now, in this case, the object of faith is Jesus. He is the one who saves us. The reliability of the object of faith is more important than the amount of faith we have. Now, let me illustrate that for you. When you sit on a chair, we exercise faith that the chair is able to support your weight, right? However, that faith is useless if the chair itself is dodgy and poorly made. You will crash on the floor if the chair can't take your weight. See, likewise, your faith is not as important 
as compared to the object of your faith. If your faith is placed in your achievement on good works, you will not be saved, no matter how much faith you have. But if your faith is on the Lord Jesus, then you will be saved. For Jesus, the object of our faith for salvation is totally reliable. He came historically in the flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and was raised to life on the third day. He was witnessed by many who believed and gave their lives to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is the final fulfillment of all that God has promised and done in history. So salvation is not dependent on whether you have little or a lot of faith, which might fluctuate together with your emotions and your feelings and circumstances. It is dependent on the Lord Jesus and His work instead. So if you're ever in doubt, please explore the evidence of His life and His work. And when you have enough evidence, all you need to do is to trust Him to share in the benefits and the blessings of the salvation He has purchased for you with His blood. Now back to the story or my story in the beginning. See, I underestimated the problem I had, thinking that it will sort of resolve on its own. And I turned to solutions that gave me temporary relief. But they worsened my condition instead. Now, even when I knew I, need, I needed external help, I was doubtful of the medical standards in the country. In reality, they were reliable and capable of treating my problem. It is only in my humility, in my desperation, that I trusted my friend's testimony and received the solution that I so badly needed. So what more for us with a bigger problem of sin and death and death? There is no way to save ourselves, but a gift of salvation is offered to us in Christ Jesus. So may we turn to nothing and no one else but to humbly receive this gift. And all who have repented and trust in Jesus can be assured that Jesus is enough. And all glory and praise to God, our Lord and Saviour. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word to us. We come humbly before you, knowing that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Forgive us, for we have followed the ways of the world, obeyed the evil one, and satisfied the passions of our flesh. Help us, Father, not to trust in our works, our status and our abilities, but only in Christ and Christ alone to save us from this depraved condition. We are grateful and thankful for your mercy, your love and your grace towards us in Jesus. May our lives now and our words speak of your redeeming work in us 
so that others may see your workmanship and give glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.